Today on Golden Girls Sports, we take aim at some Olympic jokes that are pure gold. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken... How Do You Solve a Problem Like Sophia aired on November 10th, 1990, the eighth episode of the show's sixth season. It was written by Mark Cherry and Jamie Wooten and directed by Matthew Diamond. Hilarity ensues when Sophia, distraught over the death of a friend, decides to become a nun. There's not a lot to the episode, and that's not a complaint. It's still super funny, even if the plot isn't the most complex the Golden Girls have ever had. Sophia moving out has a big effect on not just Dorothy, but Blanche and Rose as well. And the former recounts all the ways Sophia showed her she cared. You know what I'm going to miss most about Sophia? The way she used to tease me. The way she would ever so subtly jab me with names like Tramp. (laughs) Floozy. (laughs) Trollop. Harlot. (laughs) Magic Carpet Ride. The human luge. <laughs> but she was never cuter than when she simply called you shore leave. <laughs> oh, God, I missed that moment. Sophia comes back, of course, after she realizes that she may have made a rash decision. I don't know if that was the right call. Maybe having Sophia living in a convent would have been a better idea for a spinoff than the Golden Palace was. We'll get to all the luge stuff in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about the episode. Writer Jamie Wooten said he and Cherry wanted to do a story exploring Sophia and Dorothy's Catholic roots. The words, Sophia as a nun, were enough for them to get the go-ahead from producers. For research, they met with a woman who had joined the church at 55, after already having a husband and kids. That was where they found out that new recruits are given a psychological test, leading to the Rorschach test scene in the episode. The nuns we meet along the way were played by a trio of notable actresses with long and varied careers. Sister Claire, who administers that Rorschach test, was played by Leela Ivy, who's been in a bunch of sitcoms like Alf, Murphy Brown, and Uncle Buck, and in dramas like Quantum Leap, Jag, and Party of Five. She's also got a few movie credits like Woody Allen's The Purple Rose of Cairo and The Addams Family. She had a recurring role on period drama Homefront, too. Sister Anne, who Sophia hustles at poker, was played by Lynn Marie Stewart, who at the time A Problem Like Sophia aired was already known to millions of kids as Miss Yvonne on Pee-wee's Playhouse. She's been in a million things going back to George Lucas's American Graffiti. She moved on to TV after that, appearing on Hawaii Five-0 and MASH in the mid-70s, and just never stopped. Her credits list is incredibly long and incredibly fascinating highlighted by the fact that she not only guest starred on six episodes of Laverne and Shirley, playing five different characters, but she also voiced Shirley in the animated cartoon of the show. In addition to Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Stewart was also in the films Summer School, The Running Man, and Dunstan Checks In. She's still working hard both in front of the camera and in voice work, and is best known today as Charlie's well-meaning but possibly psychotic mom on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Finally, Playing Mother Superior was Kathleen Freeman, the venerable Chicago actress who made a career of playing intimidating ladies that were not to be trifled with. 
The second sentence of her Wikipedia page even says, quote, in a career that spanned more than 50 years, she played acerbic maids, secretaries, teachers, busybodies, nurses, and battle axe neighbors and relatives almost invariably to comic effect, end quote. Born to traveling vaudeville actors, Freeman first acted as a kid in school and quickly learned the power she had to get laughs from an audience. She had an uncredited role in Singing in the Rain and would go on to become the nemesis of Jerry Lewis, appearing opposite the goofball comedian in 11 films, including The Nutty Professor, The Ladies' Man, and The Patsy. On TV, she did literally everything from westerns to detective shows to sitcom after sitcom for decades. And always playing the same type, gruff, mean, no-nonsense, and often hilarious, no matter how little time she spent on screen. Freeman's one scene in The Blues Brothers, as the nun-slash-grim reaper known to Jake and Elwood as The Penguin, leaves as indelible a mark as any of the other timeless gags in that movie. And on Married with Children, she didn't even have to be on screen at all, giving voice to Peg Bundy's mother and Al Bundy's nightmares. She finally achieved Broadway success late in life, performing in the stage version of The Full Monty. She was nominated for a Tony Award in 2001, the same year she passed away from cancer at the age of 82. She may no longer be with us, but Kathleen Freeman will forever be America's battle axe. Believe it or not, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Sophia wasn't the first time the luge was used on the Golden Girls, or even in that sixth season. In Blanche Delivers, the season premiere, written by Gail Parent and Jim Valley, Rose prepares for the U.S. Senior Sports Classic, where she'll compete in ice skating for the first time since she was a kid. We talked about this episode back in Episode 8 of this podcast. Blanche is inspired by Rose's dedication. At least, she is for a minute. Well, I'm off to sign up. Wish me luck. I think it's wonderful that you're taking part in this senior sports classic. You know, I might try entering it myself in 15 years when I'm eligible. (laughs) If I can come up with an event. The luge is the only one where you get to lie on your back. The focus of Blanche Delivers was on Blanche's daughter, Rebecca, giving birth after having gotten artificial insemination the season before. Rebecca was played once again by Deborah Engel, who would play the character a total of four times, in three episodes of The Golden Girls and in one of The Golden Palace. The Chicago-born actress doesn't have a long credits list, but she was on a host of other popular shows including Family Ties, Blossom, Empty Nest, Home Improvement, Sabrina, and Crossing Jordan. Engel revealed in Golden Girls Forever that shooting the scene where Rebecca gives birth was a difficult one for her, as she had recently had a late-term miscarriage herself but she later had a healthy baby girl and brought her to the set to meet the Golden Girls when she did Even Grandma's Get the Blues later in season six. But let's get back to the luge, that incredibly fast and dangerous winter roller coaster that at least at first glance invokes feelings of vertigo rather than virility. Like tennis, the subject of our last episode, the luge can trace its roots back hundreds of years, People have been using sleds for transportation in places like Norway and Switzerland dating back to the 15th century. It's only natural that races would soon follow. Luge, which means sledge in French, made a major leap in Switzerland in 1883. That's when hotel owner and winter tourism pioneer Caspar Badrut set up the first international race in the town of Davos. Competitors from seven countries took to the icy two-and-a-half-mile road from Davos to Klosters on delivery boy sleds, much to the danger of passing pedestrians. 
The International Sled Sports Federation was founded in 1913, and soon man-made tracks started popping up all over Europe. The first world championships were held in Oslo, Norway in 1955, and a new governing body, International Luge Federation, was founded in 1957. The Luge made its Olympics debut in 1964 Winter Games in Innsbruck, Austria, and right from the beginning, the Germans established their dominance. Between 1964 and 1988, they won 15 gold medals, with George Hackel winning three consecutive golds from 1994 to 2002. Whether it's men's singles, women's singles, doubles, or team relay, Germany is on top of the luge medal board. The sport really hasn't changed much over the decades either. Fastest time still wins. The small sleds are more flexible now than they were in the beginning, but they still don't have brakes. Artificial tracks are usually made from concrete and allow for drastically banked turns and curves. Natural tracks are existing mountain roads and paths that have been naturally iced down. Like in hockey, soft ice makes for slower speeds than harder ice. Losers steer by using their calves and shoulders, but you also need to have a strong neck and abdomen to be able to withstand some pretty serious g-forces. No, really. Riders can reach speeds up to 87 miles an hour, all while wearing just a spandex suit, helmet, and visor. And if you're a doubles rider, you do all that with somebody else lying on top of you. Which brings us right back to Blanche Devereaux. Another indirect reference to the Olympics happened in Rose the Prude, the season one episode in which Rose reluctantly gets back into the dating scene and fears her boyfriend Arnie could die after sleeping with her the way her husband Charlie had. The Mort Nathan and Barry Finaro written episode was the first Golden Girls appearance of Harold Gould, who would return a few seasons later as Rose's longtime boyfriend Miles Weber. We will have a whole feature episode on Gould in season four. But while Rose and Arnie's relationship played out on screen, Dorothy and Sophia were deep into their own personal conflict. Dorothy is determined to finally beat her mother at gin rummy after several straight decades of losing. Unfortunately, that's a lot easier said than done, and Sophia just keeps cleaning up. Gin. <laughs> Dorothy, what's the matter? Something wrong? That thrill of victory! The agony of defeat. <laughs> Dorothy then vows to never play gin rummy with her mother again. But when Sophia says she loves the talks they have when they play, rather than the money she wins, Dorothy dives right back in. It's probably a little like being a Buffalo Bills fan. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat is a reference to the iconic opening of ABC's Wide World of Sports, which, starting in 1970, included footage of a terrible ski jump crash. the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. The skier in the clip was Slovenia's Vinko Bogotaj, who was 22 at the time and racing for Yugoslavia at the World Ski Flying Championships in Oberstdorf, West Germany. His first jump had been an excellent one good for 410 feet. But getting ready for his second jump, conditions worsened. He told ESPN in 2016, through his daughter who was acting as an interpreter, quote, it was bad weather. He had to wait around 20 minutes before he got permission to start. He remembers that he couldn't see very good. The track was very bad. 
and just before he could jump, the snow or something grabbed his skis and he fell. From that moment, he doesn't remember anything. End quote. He wasn't right the entire way down. You can see it. He skidded off the edge of the ski jump and crashed violently through a banner at the end of the ramp, and then continued down a path and bowled into a crap. Despite how it looked, Bogotaj wasn't seriously hurt and was back training that summer. Little did he realize that across the Atlantic Ocean, Americans had been re-watching his crash every Saturday afternoon and would for years. In 1981, ABC hosted a 20th anniversary gala for Wide World of Sports and invited Bogotaj. He got the loudest ovation of any of the featured guests, and after meeting Muhammad Ali at the party, forged a longtime friendship with the champ. Bogotaj returned to Slovenia and has become a decorated artist, with his paintings being displayed all over Europe. It's a nice lesson to show that you can taste the thrill of victory, even if you are the poster child for the agony of defeat. Let's switch from the Winter Olympics to the Summer Games, which had an event that was also mentioned in Blanche Delivers. While Rebecca is in labor, Blanche tries to help, and reminds everyone that maybe the whole motherhood thing wasn't really her cup of tea. How you doing, baby? I'm scared. Oh, honey, there's nothing to be afraid of. Just remember, pull, pull. Oh, no, that's skeet shooting. Uh. Shooting sports have been a part of the Olympics since the 1896 Games in Athens. Olympic skeet shooting was added to the program in 1968 as a co-ed event. In 1996, it went to men's only, but by 2000, a women's skeet shooting event was added. Shooters must keep their rifles on their hips until after the clay target has been released, which can be between 0 and 3 seconds after the shooter has called for it. That's a very simple distillation of the many rules and regulations of what is arguably the most difficult shooting discipline in the Olympics. The reigning queen of Olympic skeet shooting is Kim Rhodes, who has won medals in six straight games in both skeet and double trap shooting. She won gold in 1996, 2004, and 2012, a silver in 2008, and bronzes in 2000 and 2016. So uh, don't mess with her. One specific Summer Olympics was referenced on the Golden Girls also. In Older and Wiser, a season six Richard Vaxi and Tracy Gamble written script that we've talked about a lot recently, Dorothy enrolls Sophia in a local old age home under the lie that she's the place's activities director. Meanwhile, Blanche gets an opportunity to be a model in a local penny saver ad and makes the mistake of taking Rose to her photo shoot. What's wrong? I will tell you what's wrong. I took Rose here on my shoot today, and they want to use her hands. Imagine they want to use my face but her hands. Can you believe it? This is the most humiliating thing that's ever happened to me. Ah, how quickly you forget the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. <laughs> Big deal. 80,000 people had to wait 20 minutes. The torch eventually got there, didn't it? Things turn out poorly for both of them when the makers of Ponce de Leon anti-aging cream use the girls as before examples in their ad. At least George Costanza had one successful job as a hand model. The 1964 Tokyo Olympics were the first to be held in Asia. The city had won the bid to host the games in 1940, but after the breakout of World War II, that tournament was canceled. In 1959, Tokyo was selected again, 
and set to work building stadiums and infrastructure to support the 5,151 athletes from 93 participating nations and all the people that would come watch as spectators. Japan was very successful in its first Olympics, winning 16 gold medals, 5 silvers, and 8 bronzes to finish third behind traditional powers the United States and the USSR. Stars of the 64 games include Ethiopia's Abebe Bikila, who won the marathon for a second time, and Russian gymnast Larissa Latinina, who won two golds, two silvers, and two bronzes to give her a career total of 18 Olympic medals. Despite Blanche's protestations, the torch does not seem to have arrived late. Starting in Greece in August of 1964, it was carried through 12 cities over two months and even on a special plane before reaching the nation of Japan. All told, it took 100,000 relay runners to get it to Tokyo on October 10, 1964. The final runner was Hiroshima-born Yoshinori Sakai, who was selected because he was born on August 6, 1945, the day the United States dropped the first atomic bomb on that very city. Okay, so the torch got there on time, but that doesn't mean something didn't eventually go wrong with it. After the 64 games, the flame was split among three cities and was kept burning in a training facility in Kagoshima for years, until 2013. A few months after Tokyo was awarded the 2020 Summer Olympics, the flame mysteriously went out, and the official in charge uh, didn't tell anyone and just relit it before coming clean and leaving it off for good. One famous Summer Olympian was referenced in Season 1 of The Golden Girls. In Job Hunting, written by Kathy Spear and Terry Grossman, Rose struggles to get back into the job market after losing her gig at the Grief Counseling Center where she was working. Longtime viewers will know that she eventually got a job at another Grief Counseling Center in later seasons, but we'll just move on for now. Not sure what to do, Rose starts treating clients at home to the point where some call in the middle of the night. Then it's time for Dorothy and Blanche to do a little counseling. I am really sorry about this, because it won't happen again. Now, come on, we can all go back. No, 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 wait, Rose, sit down, move yeah. over. Move over. Now listen, we have something to talk to you about. We are worried about you. Now maybe it's none of our business, but all that time that you spend with those pathetic wimps from the center, you should spend looking for a job. But those wimps need me. But Rose, honey, you have your own problems. Look, you are 55, unemployed, your husband is dead, and you have no training. Let's face it, Rose, you're not exactly Mary Lou Retton. <laughs> When this episode first aired on March 8, 1986, Mary Lou Retton was not only America's sweetheart, but the new prototype for American gymnasts. Two years earlier, at the 1984 Summer Olympics held in Los Angeles, Retton became the first woman from the USA to win the all-round gold medal in gymnastics, beating Romania's Ekaterina Zabo by a fraction of a point. In addition to her perfect 10 in the all-round, Retton also won two silvers and two bronzes at the Games, and found herself the most talked-about athlete in America for a good long time. Originally from Fairmont, West Virginia, Retton was inspired by Nadia Comaneci's triple gold medal performance in the 1976 Games, and moved to Houston at the age of 14 to train under Bella Caroli, the Transylvanian-born coach that had trained Comaneci. Caroli taught the strong and barely 4'10 Retton an array of stunts and vaults that he claimed, quote, no other woman in the world can do. But after qualifying during the trials, and just a few weeks before the games began, 
Retton had to have surgery on her knee. She missed no training time and was back in the gym the next day. Nobody knew this until after she had won, coming from behind to beat Zabo, who had been the odds-on favorite to win gold. Afterwards, it became just another part of the legend. Retton was signed to do ads for McDonald's and Vidal Sassoon, appeared on the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and a Bob Hope Christmas special, and The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and Seventeen Magazine, and became the first female athlete to be featured on a box of Wheaties. Pretty busy schedule for a 16-year-old. Retton ended up settling in Houston, where she finished high school and attended the University of Texas. Her and her husband, Shannon Kelly, have four daughters, three of which are accomplished athletes themselves. Since Retton's magical summer of 1984, Nastia Lukin, Shannon Miller, and recently Simone Biles have racked up more medals than Retton ever did. But between her athleticism, showmanship, and drive for gold, she was the one to set the standard for the next 30-plus years of what gymnasts were expected to be. At the time of this recording, USA Gymnastics is the focus of an abhorrent story. Former trainer Larry Nasser was able to use his position as a doctor to molest hundreds of young women, some allegedly at Caroli's training camp in Houston, for years without repercussion, while USA Gymnastics and his home base of Michigan State University turned a blind eye. On January 24, 2018, Judge Rosemary Aquilina sentenced Nasser to up to 175 years in prison for his heinous and unconscionable crimes. Retton hasn't been vocal during the ordeal, but she is a member of USA Gymnastics and it's clear that the organization needs a different kind of overhaul than the one Retton ushered in all those years ago. How Do You Solve a Problem Like Sophia is one of the show's minor classics. And like the compilation shows we talked about at the end of last season, it's less about the sum of its parts and more about scenes that are just funny. The B story is a little bit more convoluted than the A story. It involves Blanche getting into an accident with Rose's car and their attempts to discredit the guy who might be scamming them in a lawsuit. We'll talk about that in an episode later on in the season. Making sex jokes about the luge is the kind of next-level thinking the Golden Girls had in spades. You would think the gag about Blanche sleeping around would get tired after six seasons, but the way the writers were able to keep getting more and more creative with their insults, and the way the four actresses were able to deliver those lines with such energy the entire time, practically guarantees freshness even up to today. I mean, seriously, the luge? Who even thinks about that? I'm still impressed every time I watch these episodes. Next time on Golden Girl Sports, we spray down our rented shoes with disinfectant because we're going bowling. Golden Girl Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>